Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Larson, executive editor of Power Magazine, and you are listening to the Power Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Neil Wilmshurst. He is the Senior Vice President of Energy System Resources with the Electric Power Research Institute, or what we commonly refer to as EPRI. So, Neil, thank you so much for joining me. Can you just give a little bit about your background and and what you do with EPRI? Okay, well, great to be here, Aaron. So, yeah, as we um, have discussed, I'm from the UK. I, um, when I left school, I joined the Royal Navy, got involved in nuclear submarines, did that for 13 years in the Royal Navy as a nuclear submarine engineer officer. Then when I left the Navy, I went to work at Sizewell B, the first pressurized water reactor in the UK. Stayed there for a number of years, ultimately ran the maintenance department at Sizewell. And then I was asked to come to the US as part of an adventure that became known as Amagen, where in partnership with um, what was then Pico um, Electric in Philadelphia, we bought Oyster Creek, Clinton, and Three Mile Island. I was asked to stay at Three Mile Island as part of the purchase agreement. And as many people know, Pico became excellent. And so that's how I came to the US. Unfortunately, the partnership um, fell apart when British Energy, my home kind of base company, went bankrupt in the UK. And that is how I landed very fortuitously at EPRU. Initially in the nuclear sector, where ultimately I ran the nuclear sector at EPRI for 10 years um, in the period post Fukushima. And then late last year, I was asked to take on a broader role as looking after the entire generation side of the EPRI R&D set. Still nuclear, but generation in terms of fossil, renewables, hydro, and um, bulk energy storage. So an interesting transition from a lifelong nuke to be now responsible for the entire generation portfolio of EPRI. Well, it's definitely an interesting history. And as you mentioned, your background is quite similar to mine, having been in the U.S. Navy and, and uh, also working at an excellent plant at Quad City. So we have that in common. But I'm I'm a big fan of EPRI. I know your group does a lot of great work, a lot of great research, works with a lot of utilities. What role do you see it playing in this power generation space now that you obviously have a big, broad picture of all the different generation technologies that are out there? That's a great question, especially in the context of where we find ourselves leading up to COP26 and the discussion of 2030 goals, 2050 goals, and everything else leading to addressing climate change. The way I look at the challenge that the industry and EPRI face is if you think about how long it takes to deploy infrastructure, the investment decisions for the infrastructure we'll have in place in 2050 are going to be made sometime in the next 10 to 15 years. And that infrastructure that is being um, decided upon, say, 2035, will need to be the infrastructure that enables that zero carbon economy. So we haven't got long. And the role that EPRI, and in particular my group at EPRI, needs to play is understanding those technologies, understanding the, um, the challenges to what I characterize as de-risk those investment decisions 
in the 2030-2035 time frame. People need to understand what the challenges are, what they need to be doing in order to have that certainty that those investments will give us the infrastructure we need in 2050. So the next 10 years or so is probably one of the most important um, timeframes for EPRI to really lead in and help people understand these rapidly changing technologies. Yeah, there's a lot going on, and, and you talk about going out into the future, you know, in the next 20, 30 years. How do you see the world reaching these goals that are being set, and what challenges are they going to be facing, or are countries already facing, to get to these decarbonization goals? That is a very deep question. Every country is different, and I think the first perspective you have to have is that every country is different, every country's challenges are different, but everyone moves, needs to move together because there's no net benefit of just addressing climate change in the US because other countries need to come along as well. And one of the big challenges is understanding that every country is different, every market's different. For example, in the US, there's a big discussion about carbon capture and storage. And that is actually quite a viable technology in the US, all kinds of challenges around deployment, but it's a technology which can be deployed. And the US is uniquely positioned because the geology in the US is actually very amenable to um, storing CO2. Not so much in Europe, for example. The geology is not very um, amenable to CO2 storage in Europe. So you get these different discussions. You hear in Europe, the answer to climate change is, to put it very simplistically, leave fossil fuel in the ground. You come to the US and the answer is, you know, carbon capture sequestration is part of the challenge. So that is part of the big challenge, is understanding everyone's different. The other challenges include getting there equitably. Not everyone in society can actually be expected to pay more for energy. You know, the percentage of my disposable income I pay on electricity is way lower than someone earning a fraction of what I earn. How do markets change in order to um, affect these changes to generation technologies and not actually impact people who, who are the least able to sustain those additional costs. And then another challenge would be the workforce to get there. We need as a society to figure out what to do to, to bring the workforce along, train them to actually implement these technologies, deploy these new technologies. There are workforces currently employed on fossil plants, for example. They need to be reskilled, retrained in order to work in the renewable industry or whatever to, de to deploy these te new technologies. So many challenges and what we need to do coming out of COP26 is everyone working together in a coordinated way to move this forward. Hmm. Many of the less developed countries are still adding generation to their fleets, and, and the most economical for them in many cases is carbon-rich fuels such as fossil fuels and, you know, whether it's gas or coal. 
how can we encourage these developing nations to skip the fossil fuels and go straight to the renewables? Is that just by making them cheaper and making them uh, more economical to deploy in, in those regions? That's part of it. But the analogy I'd use is think about Africa and telephones. You know, we in the West grew up with landline telephones and all that infrastructure that was in place. And we then made this gradual transition to cell phones. And many people, myself included, have dropped landlines and now are, now are solely using um, cell phones. Africa skipped in many places the landlines went straight from nothing to cell phones. So they didn't have to go through the multiple iterations of technology in order to get to the technology which we're all comfortable with now. That is one of the opportunities of actually helping these developing nations deploy the latest technology rather than going through the iterations of learning and everything else. And some of the latest technology may be incrementally more expensive, but you can actually deploy fossil plants with a lower carbon footprint than we would have done 20, 30 years ago. So I think that is the opportunity. The developed world helping the developing world actually skip some of the technology iterations that we've gone through. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that is kind of the central role of EPRI bringing people together to collaborate and learn those lessons and then move forward from there. How do you see industry, government, and end users all working together to solve some of these challenges? Can you explain uh, maybe where you're seeing the most benefit taking place? Well, these technology developments are substantial and they require, as we talked about a few minutes ago, a, a risk um, decision on investment. So really where the government investment, industry investment, and EPRI comes together is on that technology demonstration end. How do we, as a coalition of stakeholders, remove that risk by jointly funding smaller scale demonstrations, get confidence, move up to the larger scale demonstrations, and then reach the point where commercial entities are ready to go to full-scale deployment. And there's an interesting dynamic at the moment that with the impetus of climate change, there are some well-known, independently wealthy individuals out there who are bringing together their wealth and setting up various foundations to help this. There's one foundation that, I, that we're kind of in contact with that's looking to remove some of that investment hesitancy in, develop, in deploying into the commercial space. There's other um, foundations looking at engaging in that front-end development space. So we're seeing government money, kind of corporate America money, and philanthropic organizations coming together in a way I don't think we've seen before, all motivated by this burning platform of climate change and the need to address it. And the key thing, which is happening now, kind of organically, and will accelerate, I hope, around COP26, 
is these stakeholders really coordinating? Because there is a potential for people to be disjointed, be uh, duplicate each other's work, potentially pull in slightly opposite directions. What we have to do is align those vectors so they're all pulling in the same direction towards the same goals, the same timelines. And that really comes down to the, um, the development of a clear, what I'll call roadmap of what we need to do and how we need to get there. And that is the key thing that we need to develop over the next months is that alignment so everyone's moving along the same path towards the same goal. And another aspect of this that I think the pandemic has even brought to light is supply chains. I know I've seen some images from different ports around the world where ships are stacked up and, and you know they just can't get supplies in or out of these ports. What can we do to improve supply chains and maintain uh, and advance new generation technologies within this framework? Do you have any suggestions for that sort of thing? That is a fantastic question. It's something we often think about. These technologies can be developed. We can develop wind turbines, solar panels, offshore wind, floating offshore wind, advanced nuclear reactors. But then you start asking the question, where are they going to be built and how are they going to be constructed? If you're going to build a nuclear plant today, for example, there are very few facilities in the world where those reactor vessels can be forged. So that in itself is a limiting factor to how many nuclear reactors can be built in any period of time. And there's similar constraints on whatever technology you may look at. There's a limit on how many solar panels can be made, a limit on how many wind turbines can be made. So what we started looking at is you start looking at different manufacturing technologies. Everyone hears about 3D printing, but there's other advanced manufacturing techniques which have really been developing really, really fast in the background um, with the help of people like um, Elon Musk at SpaceX doing all kinds of incredible things with advanced manufacturing. So that is what we need to do is start embracing these new technologies and new materials actually to produce these components faster, more reliably, and obviously cheaper as well. But the, the next challenge you reach when you look at these advanced manufacturing and new materials is everything we build today is built to a code or a standard. Even the house that I'm sitting in is built to a building code. Where did those building codes come from? They're a consensus code which has developed over the decades based on experience and the judgment of people who've been in the building industry for decades. The code is very conservative and by practice changes very slowly. That is the same approach as the code for operating the power grid, as the code for accepting metal components for nuclear plants. What we have to do is find a way to speed up that code acceptance, whatever it may be. In this transition to 2030 and 2050, we can't wait 10 years for the code that determines how we operate the power grid to change. 
that power grid needs tremendous change. Those codes and standards need to change at the speed that they're needed, but also make sure that safety and reliability are protected. And so that is a big challenge. Maintaining safety and reliability whilst accelerating the way these codes processes change. Good point. Earlier, you talked a little bit about the workforce and, and training. And as, you know, old technologies or old plants are decommissioned, we maybe need to bring our workforce along into new technologies and, and moving into renewables. So how does reskilling the workforce play uh, a role in, in achieving some of these goals? We work in many different areas, and this is something which we started looking at in the nuclear industry. The nuclear industry, as you know, spends a tremendous amount of money on training to make sure its workforce are, have the right skills and the right experience to do what they need to do. So then you look in the bigger picture of how can we do this better, and the pandemic in many ways caused people to look at things differently. Traditionally, we've got people together in classrooms and they've been sat there with an instructor for hours, days, weeks, having these classes. The world has moved on with Microsoft Teams, Zoom, uh, WebEx, whatever you use. So there's a, there's a role now for remote training. There's a role for computerized training. So the whole training aspect is different. So we're seeing a real move to actually centralize training and actually help people gain those, that knowledge in their own time um, from remote learning. Another thing we're also seeing is things like augmented reality, artificial intelligence are really coming to bear at the same time as us transitioning through the pandemic. So when you see this reformatting of the training delivery combined with artificial intelligence, which is going to transform some of these jobs in the future, I see a real opportunity for us to rethink what reskilling the workforce looks like. And you touched a little bit on codes and how the codes need to change with the times. There's also regulatory frameworks and operational frameworks that that are behind a lot of the policies that go into our electric grid and into the energy system in general. How can we improve upon those? You know, you you sometimes think about the nuclear industry in particular, which we're both familiar with. It can take many years and even decades to get a, a design approved. Is that is there a way to improve the system so that these can happen more quickly and, and still be effective and safe in, in the way that they're rolled out? There absolutely is. And um, it's very easy for people to look at the regulators and say the world wouldn't perfect it wasn't for the regulators. The regulators have a role. They have a role to make sure that the public is kept safe, especially in the nuclear world. That is a key role. There. So it's acceptance that the regulators need to be independent. They need to actually do their role. But that doesn't preclude people working with the regulator transparently. And what I've seen in the nuclear industry is if there's a respect for the fact the regulator has a role, the regulator also respects the industry has a role, 
And I'm seeing the regulators starting to change the way they work. For example, there's a conversation going on around how do the regulators in the US and the regulators in Canada work together to actually speed up the review of common items. That wouldn't have happened without the current imperatives and the regulators being willing to change. So I think the industry at large needs to engage the regulators. And it's something EPRI is doing as well as part of this transition is educating the regulators on the industry, on the issues, on the options, on the technologies. So I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing in the entire regulatory framework of the regulators engaging with the industry, engaging with organizations like EPRI to understand. But in all of this, you have to remember the regulators have a role that they need to fulfill. So it has to be that kind of that barrier between the regulators and the industry. So I'm seeing changes. In your role with EPRI, I know you are deeply involved in research and and new technologies, and so I'm sure you see a lot of interesting things come through your office. So what are you most excited about, and and how will these new types of technologies that maybe you're uh, in tune to, how will they impact the power generation industry going forward? You know, as a a lifelong nuke, it would be very easy for me to now go down the road of small modular reactors, um, molten salt reactors and everything else. I won't go there. They're exciting. But there's other things, which I'll be honest, I really didn't dig much into before my current role. Something which is going to be very important is carbon capture. Actually, the potential of carbon capture in this transition is going to be phenomenal. We have to figure this out. We have to deploy it. And the challenge with carbon capture is going to be, back to the last question, working with regulators. It's going to be organizations like EPRI going to the regulators and saying, what are you worried about? What would stop you permitting carbon storage in your um, area? And doing the research to help enable those regulators to make an informed decision. So that is one thing that makes me really excited. Obviously, another one which is getting all kinds of excitement globally now is hydrogen and alternative energy carriers. As you look at 2050, we cannot get to that zero carbon um, target just by removing CO2 from the electric industry. We've got to actually remove CO2 from industrial processes from domestic processes, and hydrogen and other alternative fuels like ammonia and whatever, they have a tremendous um, appeal in in that discussion. So the whole transition to alternative energy carriers, something we call EPRI, our Low Carbon Resource Initiative, that is going to be a global discussion with tremendous interest from governments, utilities, research organizations, and those philanthropic foundations as well. So that is something we all should watch. What that energy carrier, the energy vectors are going to be in the 2050 timeframe. It's not going to be the same as it is now. What are ships going to be powered by? What are aircraft going to be powered by? What are 
industrial complex is going to be powered by. We're seeing people talking about building new nuclear power stations. Traditionally, you talk about new nuclear power stations, they're going to be connected to the grid, they're going to generate 100% power 24 hours a day, and that's their role. Now we're hearing people talk about producing hydrogen from a nuclear power plant and actually supplying that to industrial hubs. So this whole change in the role of the energy sector in the next 20, 30 years is probably the most exciting thing out there. I've got to go back to your first uh, thing that you mentioned, which was carbon capture, because I am much less optimistic about carbon capture, and I'll tell you why, is mainly the cost, the additional cost that it takes. I just feel it's it's really difficult to justify carbon capture, at least in, in the current form. Do you think we'll be able to get the costs down where it's more economical to deploy these types of systems? I have a lot of kind of empathy with you on carbon capture. I can tell you, I used to be in the same space. But when you look at the infrastructure we have today and the options we have to get to 2050, it is a real challenge to see how the U.S. gets to 2050 without leaning in hard on carbon capture. That's something, that's the, that's the kind of a thought transition I've been through to such a point where I believe carbon capture is going to be a large part of, at the very least, the transition to 2050. Because if you have coal assets or gas assets, they still produce CO2 despite all the... Um, the improvements being made to them. If we're going to have those assets actually returning their um, return on investment um, out beyond 2030, we need to address carbon capture. So from my mind, one of the arguments for carbon capture is we've already got some costs in infrastructure. Carbon ca- the added cost to carbon capture, weigh those against the cost of shutting an asset down before its end of life. And that is maybe a discussion that isn't actually um, thought about sometimes, that it's not just the cost of the capture, it's the stranded asset cost if we walk away from some of these gas plants. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I, I understand how we want to try to utilize these systems. And that's one of the reasons also that I think hydrogen is so appealing to some people is that they think they can get to 100% hydrogen solutions with gas turbines. But I do see your point. So I'll, I'll try to keep an open mind on carbon capture going forward. Yeah, that's been my, that's been my journey. I think keeping an open mind but, reckon, but being realistic about the challenges is where we need to be. And from my perspective, the regulation and the permitting of the CO2 storage is potentially the biggest challenge. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing that has me personally excited is deep dry rock geothermal. And I've, I've had guests on my show talking about that sort of technology before. And I know there's a lot of challenges to that yet. What's your view on on that sort of technology and, and geothermal in general? It's a technology which has its place. Clearly, if you're in Iceland, it's a huge part of um, the system there. So it's effective. It's been deployed. 
But again, in a grid the size of the U.S., it's a very limited impact. So it, it is it is viable, but it's all a question of scale and actually what delivers um, at the scale needed. Mm-hmm. Speaking of scale, you led off the last question without wanting to get too far into nuclear power, but how do you see nuclear power playing a role in the decarbonization effort around the world? I have to believe that nuclear has a role. Nuclear has quietly in the background been generating carbon-free power for decades. The challenge we have at the moment is the current fleet of reactors globally are uh, 20, 30 years old or, or older in the US, for example. And what does the transition to that new fleet look like? If you're in Europe, for example, you see EDF looking to build a smaller fleet of light water reactors as a transition to what we call Gen 4 reactors, the high temperature gas, molten salt type reactors, maybe sometime in the 2040s. And the EDF approach is pretty much let's actually delay our investment in those Gen 4 reactors until we're certain they can be built on time, on schedule, on cost, and reliably. So that's one approach I'm seeing. Another approach which seems to be where the U.S. is heading is to extend the life of the current fleet to actually transition into a new fleet. So it's a little bit different. France is building new for the transition. U.S. extend the life of the current fleet safely and reliably, Great great reliability from those plants at Exelon that you used to work with. So there is a role for those large Gen 4 plants out there. But something which is out there, which is going to hit the, the grid sooner than those Gen 4 plants potentially, is small modular reactors. These, by the very nature, are smaller than the large plants you and I are used to, maybe 200, 300 megawatt plants. And made in, to a great extent, in modular fashion in factories to reduce that construction risk. So I'm seeing globally a significant uptick in interest in de- and, and believable interest, which is important, on deploying these small modular reactors. So I see that as really the thing to watch in the nuclear field is this deployment of small modular reactors while these Gen 4 plants are being developed and tested um, in parallel. And the thing about these small modular reactors is it's going to change the landscape of the industry because what I'm seeing is quite often what I call not the usual suspects looking at running these, at, uh, owning these plants, non-traditional utilities looking at investing and buying these plants but maybe getting experienced nuclear operators to run them. So I think the landscape of the utility industry per se is going to change through this transition as well. I guess, you know, I'm discouraged about the role that I think nuclear will end up playing. And the reason I am is because of the costs and the time. It seems every nuclear plant that's built is over budget and delayed for whatever reason. 
And then when you talk about small modular reactors, the concept is great that you can do these in, in a modular fashion, more like an assembly line. But the whole reason that plants have gotten so large is because of the economies of scale. And now you're trying to come back to this smaller unit that maybe doesn't have the same economies of scale. Do you think any of these challenges, you know, specifically the the cost, time, and economies of scale can be overcome through industry efforts to improve upon their processes? Or or what's your feeling on that? Great question. I'll tell you something which was a a wake-up call for me was talking to some people in Europe about nuclear plant financing. Large nuclear plant being built in the UK, half the cost of that effectively is the financing costs. So people look at the total cost of a plant. The cost of the finance is almost 50% of the project. So, and the reason for that is the interest rates being charged because of the risk, because of the how long it takes and people's belief or lack of belief that the timeframes will be met. So the real opportunity for the industry is to reduce that risk in deployment. And there's two ways to do that. One is to resist what um, we did first time around in nuclear plant construction of having multiple different designs and every plant being different. The French nuclear program taught us one thing, align around one design and build many of them. And then the time frame to build becomes less. Look at what the Koreans have done building nuclear plants. There is a way to get better at building nuclear plants. And once you get the the schedule belief built up, the financing costs will go down. But you see, that is the other reason why the SMR Uh, model works as well. The risk is significantly lowered because of the factory development of the modules and also they come online faster and get that revenue stream coming earlier. Another thing I'm seeing talking to my friends in the UK is a concept called the regulated asset base where basically utilities in the UK will start getting a rate of return from their investment before the plants generate. So there are ways both the industry, the vendors and governments working together to change the dynamic for this. But at the moment, you're absolutely right. The time's too long, the uncertainty's too high, and as a result, the financing costs are out of control. I guess the last question I've got for you involves the public and the perceptions that are out there. Because today... We're seeing a lot of decisions made based on, for example, shareholder desires. You know, we talk about ESG or environmental, social, and governance policies and and people only investing in clean energy or, you know, certain pet projects that they're uh, interested in. So what public perceptions do you see out there that uh, maybe are in regulators or even lawmakers or the general public in general what needs to be overcome so that that we get on the right path to uh, utilizing our energy resources as best we can? Okay, this is 
personal opinion, not not necessarily every opinion, but what what we get back to is what is the role of a regulator? You, if you talk to a electricity regulator in the US, they will at some point in the conversation tell you their role is to get the cheapest electricity for the public in their area. And that is has historically been absolutely on point, especially when you look at ESG and this concept of energy, energy poverty where poor people can't afford to buy electricity or whatever. But if you roll into that discussion the fact that addressing climate change isn't cost-free, that is the real dynamic that needs to change. That regulators need to have the perspective of we need to get to zero carbon at 2050, as well as make sure that we don't disadvantage the less um, able parts of our, our society. So that there is a real conversation going on at the moment, a real kind of introspection about how we get to 2050, accepting the phenomenal investment in infrastructure that needs to be done but without disadvantaging those um, people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. And that is going to be that big change in the dynamic, recognizing regulators have a role which is more than just lowest cost electricity, because that will drive potentially to the wrong place. I agree with you, actually, that, that more needs to be considered than just the cost of the power. You have to think about the environment and you have to think about climate change and all these other things that are happening and affecting our world. So, Neil, I really appreciate you taking the time. I found this to be a really interesting conversation, and I appreciate your uh, willingness to come on the show and the work that you do with EPRI. So is there any last words you'd like to leave our audience with? All I say is, However exciting the previous 40 plus years of my career have been, I see this period being the most dynamic, the most exciting, and the most important. And I think we have to embrace this challenge um, that we've been faced. I was talking to someone a couple of days ago when I started my career in the Royal Navy. One of my first roles was working on changing the refrigerant in a chilled water plant on a submarine as a, result, as a result of the Montreal Protocol, which was a discussion on climate change. We have been kicking the can down the road on climate change for my entire career. That was the, that was the realization, the epiphany I had. So... The time's come to stop kicking the can down the road. We've actually got to start doing something about it. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Again, this was Neil Wilmshurst. He is the Senior Vice President of Energy System Resources with the Electric Power Research Institute. Again, Neil, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, so thank you very much. Thank you.